Hi, everyone. This is Steve Carroll, and this is the Ambasic Podcast. Today's episode is on hypothermia, just in time for the middle of the winter season here in the U.S. However, hypothermia can happen at all times of the year in a wide variety of patients, so we need to be aware of those rare presentations as well. Today's episode is written by Dr. Andrea Sarchi, who helped out with the previous episodes on acetaminophen and salicylate toxicity. I'll be handing over the microphone today to Jacob Schreiner, a second-year medical student in Emory University School of Medicine, who will be helping out with some future episodes as well. This episode will discuss the initial evaluation of hypothermia, the initial history questions you'll want to ask, along with the relevant exam findings, workup, treatment, and disposition pearls. Just as an FYI, today's episode is a little longer than usual at 37 minutes, but it really didn't make sense to split this into two episodes. So let's get to it. Here's the hypothermia episode. Hey everyone, my name is Jake Schreiner and I'm two working with Dr. Carroll on EM Basic. Today we'll be discussing hypothermia, which is defined as a core body temperature below 35 degrees Celsius or 95 degrees Fahrenheit. While hypothermia can be used as a therapeutic measure to decrease ischemic injury from a heart attack or stroke, our focus today will be on the evaluation and management of accidental hypothermia. Cases of accidental hypothermia occur most often in winter and in those who participate in outdoor activities, such as hunters, sailors, skiers, and swimmers, amongst others. Our bodies usually respond to heat loss through vasoconstriction, shivering, the release of thyroxine, and adaptive behavioral responses such as shrugging our shoulders or tucking our heads in to decrease the amount of body surface area exposed to the cold. When heat loss becomes too great, however, these mechanisms are overwhelmed, and we cannot sustain an adequate body temperature. Even with the therapeutic measures that exist today, the in-hospital mortality rate of patients with moderate to severe hypothermia is nearly 40%. This episode is written by Dr. Andrea Sarchi under the direction and supervision of Dr. Jason Mansour, an EM attending at Broward General Medical Center. So we'll start with entering the room in patient history. When you enter the room of a suspected hypothermic patient, you may find someone who is shivering and appears cold. The patient could also appear confused and lethargic or even comatose. In taking the patient's history, there is often an obvious environmental exposure involved. If not, a friend or family member might tell you that the patient was participating in an outdoor activity when he or she became uncooperative, uncoordinated, and apathetic. If the diagnosis is still not clear, ask if the patient experienced hunger, nausea, chills, dyspnea, or confusion. These are some of the many subtle symptoms with which a hypothermic patient can present. In the elderly, hypothermia often occurs indoors, and the patient will simply become less communicative and exhibit a flat affect. Also, don't think that just because you're in a warm climate that you will never see a hypothermic patient. As we will see later when we discuss the differential diagnosis, there are numerous medical conditions and medications that can cause hypothermia. Also, desert areas can get very cold at night, and exposure to rain in the elements can make hypothermia more likely even in a warm climate. When you take the patient's past medical history, find out if they have any pre-existing cardiac, pulmonary, neurologic, or endocrinologic disease. Since the signs and symptoms of hypothermia vary greatly with temperature, let's discuss the stages of hypothermia and the characteristics of each stage. The stages of hypothermia are classified according to the patient's core body temperature. As a reference, remember that the normal set point for a person's core temperature is 37 degrees plus or minus 0.5 degrees Celsius. For those of you out there who aren't accustomed to using degrees Celsius, that's 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit, plus or minus about 1 degree Fahrenheit. In mild hypothermia, the patient's core body temperature is 32 to 35 degrees Celsius, 
or 90 to 95 degrees Fahrenheit. In this stage, the patient will exhibit increased shivering thermogenesis, the development of amnesia and dysarthria, hyperventilation, and a urine temperature around 34.8 degrees Celsius. This is known as a cold diuresis. Common vital signs include tachypnea, tachycardia, with a normal blood pressure. The next level of hypothermia is the moderate stage, which corresponds to a core temperature of around 28 to 32 degrees Celsius or 82 to 90 degrees Fahrenheit. In this stage, the patient can present in a stupor and may exhibit a progressive decrease in the level of consciousness. The patient will also lose the ability to regulate their body temperature. This is known as pyokylothermia, and at this point, the patient has lost the ability to shiver to raise their body temperature. Cardiac arrhythmias such as AFib and junctional bradycardia also occur in this stage, as well as hypoventilation, dilated pupils, and CNS depression with hyporeflexia. The patient's vitals will demonstrate a proportionate decrease in pulse and respiratory rate. The last level of hypothermia is the severe stage, and the patient's temperature in this state is below 28 degrees Celsius, or 82 degrees Fahrenheit. In this stage, the patient will have the greatest susceptibility to ventricular arrhythmias, including V-fib. The patient will also have a loss of reflexes and voluntary motion. As this stage progresses, the patient will eventually lose the corneal and oculocephalic reflexes. Major acid-base disturbances and pulmonary edema can also occur. The patient will have a 50% or more decrease in oxygen consumption and pulse, as well as significant hypotension. Some experts further classify hypothermia into a profound stage of less than 20 degrees Celsius, which is 68 degrees Fahrenheit, in which a patient's pulse is 20% of normal. The patient may also have a flat EEG and asystole. Now let's move on to the physical exam. You should conduct a careful and complete scan of the patient's entire body. Look for frostbite and other cold-related injuries, as well as trauma. Since the hypothermic heart is very sensitive to movement, be careful with the patient and avoid jostling them. Rough handling of the patient could cause an arrhythmia, including V-fib. If you suspect hypothermia, you will need a low reading thermometer to determine the patient's core temperature. Most standard thermometers don't read values below 34 degrees Celsius or 93 degrees Fahrenheit. A rectal thermometer or bladder thermometer is acceptable for mild to moderate hypothermia. However, these thermometers can lag significantly behind core temperature changes during rewarming and are thus not adequate for critical patients. In critical patients with severe hypothermia, an esophageal probe is the most accurate method to track the progress of rewarming. So let's review what we've discussed thus far. The diagnosis of hypothermia is often readily apparent from the patient's history of an environmental exposure. In less clear cases, a friend or family member might tell you that the patient was outdoors when they became uncooperative, uncoordinated, and apathetic. Some of the more vague symptoms of hypothermia include hunger, nausea, chills, dyspnea, and confusion. Elderly patients often acquire hypothermia indoors, and signs include decreased communication and a flat affect. When you take the patient's past medical history, remember to ask about any pre-existing cardiac, pulmonary, neurologic, or endocrinologic disease. The stages of hypothermia are classified by core body temperature. Mild hypothermia corresponds to a body temperature from 32 to 35 degrees Celsius, moderate hypothermia from 28 to 32 degrees Celsius, and severe hypothermia is less than 28 degrees Celsius. For the Fahrenheit people out there, mild is 90 to 95, moderate 82 to 90, and severe is less than 82 degrees Fahrenheit. Mild hypothermia is characterized by increased shivering, tachypnea, and tachycardia. As the levels of hypothermia progress, the patient loses the ability to control their body temperature, and the patient's pulse and respiratory rate exhibit a proportionate decrease. 
Cardiac arrhythmias occur in the moderate and severe stages, and CNS depression and loss of reflexes gradually worsen as body temperature decreases. On physical exam, scan the patient's entire body for cold-related injuries and trauma, being careful not to jostle the patient as this can precipitate an arrhythmia in the hypothermic heart. Use a low-reading thermometer, such as a rectal probe or bladder thermometer, to obtain the patient's core temperature in mild to moderate hypothermia. In critical patients, a more accurate measurement, such as that from an esophageal probe, is necessary. Now we're going to move on to the workup. When we obtain labs, we're looking for any possible complications of hypothermia, such as rhabdomyolysis, infection, coagulation abnormalities, and acid-base disturbances. Patient with a mild accidental hypothermia who are otherwise healthy may not need laboratory workups. For all other patients, the labs you should order include a finger stick glucose, a fibrin engine level, a CBC, a CMP, a serum lactate, an ABG or VBG, and a CK level. Let's briefly discuss why we order each of these tests. The finger stick glucose level can help tell us the chronicity of hypothermia. Acute hypothermia initially elevates blood glucose levels through the release of catecholamines and subsequent glycogenolysis, while subacute and chronic hypothermia lead to hypoglycemia as a result of glycogen depletion. The fibrinogen level is useful because hypothermia causes a physiologic increase in coagulation and can lead to a DIC-type syndrome. The CBC is helpful because hypothermia can cause splenic sequestration of leukocytes and platelets, thus leading to leukopenia and thrombocytopenia. The thrombocytopenia can contribute to coagulation abnormalities, especially in the setting of trauma. Since leukocytes will be decreased, you cannot rely on the WBC count to exclude infection. Also, be aware that a patient's hematocrit can be deceivingly high as a result of decreased plasma volume. Next, the CMP is useful to obtain baselight electrolytes and to monitor renal function. Hypothermia can cause renal failure after rewarming, so monitor the patient's BUN and creatinine levels closely. Also, be sure to look at the patient's lipase levels, as hypothermia can cause ischemic pancreatitis from shock to the patient's microcirculation. Next, a serum lactate and ABG or VBG that's uncorrected for temperature are useful to look for acid-base abnormalities that may occur with hypothermia. Finally, since severe hypothermia can cause enzyme elevation and cellular damage, a CK or creatinine kinase should be ordered to look for rhabdomyolysis. Any additional lab studies are based on your own clinical suspicion. When it comes to imaging, you should order a chest x-ray to look for pulmonary edema or aspiration pneumonia. If the patient is not alert, a head and C-spine CT should also be ordered once the patient has been adequately resuscitated, if there's any possibility of trauma. Don't forget a C-collar if trauma is a possibility. The last thing we'll discuss for workup is an EKG. Recall that hypothermia can cause multiple arrhythmias such as atrial fibrillation and ventricular fibrillation amongst others. Aside from these, however, hypothermia has its own characteristic EKG changes. It causes a prolongation of all intervals, including the RR, PR, QRS, and QT. In addition, hypothermia causes a characteristic J, or Osborne wave, that represents a distortion of the earliest phase of membrane repolarization. I think of the J, or Osborne wave, as a delta wave that occurs on the right side of the R wave. I'll put a picture of this in the show notes. The height of this wave is somewhat proportional to the degree of hypothermia, and it is most prominent in the precordial leads V2 through V5. While Osborne waves are suggestive of hypothermia, they can also be found in other conditions such as subarachnoid hemorrhage and brain injury, so it's not pathognomonic. 
An important point to note is that current EKG software often cannot recognize Osborne waves and often misinterprets them as ischemic changes. Therefore, it is always important to use your own knowledge of reading EKGs rather than to rely on the computer's interpretation. Alright, now that we've concluded our discussion of the workup, let's move on to the differential diagnosis. While environmental exposure is the most common cause of hyperthermia, there are several medical conditions and medications that can also predispose to hypothermia. So when should you suspect one of these alternative causes? The answer is when the patient's signs and symptoms are inconsistent with the degree of hypothermia. Let's begin with endocrinologic causes. Endocrinologic failure due to conditions such as hypopituitarism, hypoadrenalism, and myxedema can all cause decreased thermogenesis and lead to hypothermia. In a patient that fails to rewarm despite aggressive interventions, you should suspect an endocrinologic cause and order a serum cortisol level and thyroid function studies. Another time to suspect an alternative cause of hypothermia is when the patient's vital signs are inconsistent with the degree of hypothermia. A relative tachycardia that doesn't coincide with the patient's core temperature suggests hypoglycemia, hypovolemia, or an overdose. Since the CO2 production should be decreased in moderate or severe hypothermia, a relative hyperventilation suggests an underlying acidosis such as a DKA or aspirin overdose. If you suspect one of these, be sure to order a UA and serum salicylate level in addition to the tests you would normally order for hypothermia. While the neurologic manifestations of hypothermia can vary greatly, the patient's level of consciousness should be consistent with the core temperature. If it is not, consider a head injury, CNS infection, or overdose. In any patient you suspect of an overdose, a tox screen should be ordered. Other causes of hypothermia include malnutrition due to the decrease in subcutaneous fat and loss of insulation, as well as many medications including anxiolytics, antidepressants, antipsychotics, opioids, oral diabetes meds, beta blockers, general anesthetic agents, and alpha-adrenergic agonists such as clonidine. Remember to take a careful history of all of the patient's medications. Now let's summarize the workup in differential. Otherwise healthy patients with mild accidental hypothermia may not need a laboratory workup. For all others, you should order the following lab tests. A finger stick glucose to help you tell the degree of hypothermia. A fibrinogen level to look for coagulation abnormalities. A CBC to look for leukopenia, thrombocytopenia, or decreased hematocrit. A CMP to obtain baseline electrolytes and monitor renal function. Also, get a lipase evaluation for ischemic pancreatitis, a serum lactate and ABG or VBG uncorrected for temperature to look for acid-base abnormalities, and a CK to look for rhabdomyolysis. Order a chest x-ray to look for pulmonary edema or aspiration pneumonia, and if the patient is not alert, then a non-contrast head and spine CT should be ordered if there is any possibility of trauma. Don't forget the C-collar in those cases. When looking at the EKG, remember that hypothermia can cause multiple arrhythmias such as AFib and VFib, but it also has its own characteristic EKG changes. These include prolongation of all intervals, including the RR, PR, QRS, and QT, as well as the characteristic J, or Osborne wave, which appears as a distortion of the earliest phase of membrane repolarization, and is seen most prominently in the precordial leads V2 through V5. Remember, you can think of this wave as a delta wave, but to the right of the R wave. For the differential diagnosis of hypothermia, you should suspect a cause other than environmental exposure when the patient's signs and symptoms are inconsistent with the degree of hypothermia. 
in patients who fail to rewarm despite aggressive interventions, you should suspect an endocrinologic cause and order a serum cortisol level in thyroid function studies. A relative tachycardia that doesn't coincide with the patient's core temperature suggests hypoglycemia, hypovolemia, or an overdose. A relative hyperventilation suggests an underlying acidosis such as DKA or aspirin overdose, and a UA and serum salicylate level should be ordered in these patients. If the patient's level of consciousness is inconsistent with the core temperature, consider a head injury, CNS infection, or overdose. A tox screen should be ordered in any patients you suspect of having an overdose. Other causes of hypothermia include malnutrition and many medications such as anxiolytics, antidepressants, antipsychotics, opioids, oral antihyperglycemics, beta blockers, general anesthetic agents, and alpha-adrenergic agonists such as clonidine. Okay, now let's move on to the meat of this discussion, the management of hypothermia. Hypothermia is unique in that sometimes even patients who are cold, stiff, and cyanotic with fixed pupils, inaudible heart sounds, and without visible thoracic breathing movements can still be successfully resuscitated. There have even been cases where hypothermic patients were declared dead and later recovered in the morgue. Therefore, you should have a low threshold to treat a hypothermic patient. Later, we will discuss some of the few circumstances that might indicate a futile resuscitation. The management of a patient with hypothermia is centered on prevention of further heat loss, the initiation of appropriate rewarming techniques, and the treatment of complications. Like any patient, however, we must begin with the ABCs. For the airway, we perform endotracheal intubation in patients with respiratory distress or who cannot protect their airway. Hypothermia can cause bronchorrhea in patients with altered mental status or a decreased cough reflex, so early intubation can help with clearing secretions in these patients. For the patient's breathing, we administer oxygen, which may or may not be heated and humidified. We'll talk about this more when we discuss rewarming. For the patient's circulation, we must administer fluids in those with moderate to severe hypothermia because they can become hypotensive during rewarming from fluid shifts and dehydration. Two large bore 14 or 16 gauge peripheral IVs should be placed and the patient should be given infusions of isotonic saline that is warmed to 40 to 42 degrees Celsius. It's essential that you use warmed saline because room temperature fluids can actually worsen hypothermia. If IV access can't be obtained because the patient is too vasoconstricted from the cold, then obtain access with an IO line. Consider central access if needed as well. When you check the patient's pulse, be aware that a peripheral pulse is difficult to palpate in a vasoconstricted bradycardic patient. Therefore, you should check a central pulse using Doppler ultrasound for up to a full minute. If you do confirm cardiac arrest, then chest compressions should be initiated. Contraindications to performing chest compressions in a hypothermic patient would be obviously lethal injuries and, of course, a verified DNR. Other times when you should consider withholding resuscitation are when the body is so thoroughly frozen that chest compressions are impossible, or if the nose and mouth are completely blocked with ice. You'll have to use your best clinical judgment here. Some biochemical markers that may aid in your decision include a serum potassium level, fibrinogen level, and or ammonia level. Extreme hyperkalemia exceeding 12 MEQs per liter reflects cell lysis and predicts a futile resuscitation. In addition, a fibrinogen level below 50, which is evidence of intravascular thrombosis, as well as an ammonia level greater than 240, are additional indicators of a grave prognosis. 
In the many cases, when you do resuscitate a patient, efforts should be continued indefinitely until the patient's core temperature reaches 32 to 35 degrees Celsius or 90 to 95 degrees Fahrenheit. Next, let's talk about monitoring the patient's core temperature. As we spoke about when we discussed the physical exam, a rectal temperature is often used in mild and moderate hypothermia. If the patient is intubated, however, an esophageal probe is the ideal method for continuous temperature monitoring. Just keep in mind that if the patient is receiving heated O2, the temperature may be falsely elevated. Another important monitoring device to use is an indwelling bladder catheter with a urine meter bag. This should be used in patients with moderate and severe hypothermia to help determine the severity of vascular fluid shifts. And just to reiterate, remember to be careful with the patient and not jostle him or her, as any rough movements can precipitate an arrhythmia. Okay, now let's move on to rewarming the patient. The three categories in which all rewarming techniques fall are passive external rewarming, active external rewarming, and active internal rewarming. Passive external rewarming is the treatment of choice for most patients with mild hypothermia. The technique simply involves covering the patient with an insulating material, such as a blanket, and setting the room temperature to around 82 degrees Fahrenheit. If the patient has any wet clothing on, be sure to remove this before covering them with a the blanket. Passive external rewarming prevents further heat loss so that the patient can slowly increase his or her body temperature by shivering or by increasing the metabolic rate. Patients that could have problems generating their own heat include the elderly and malnourished. If these patients or any others can't maintain a rewarming rate between half a degree and two degrees Celsius per hour, then active rewarming techniques should be utilized. If the patient is otherwise healthy and fails to respond to passive external rewarming, consider other causes of hypothermia besides environmental exposure. Now let's talk about active rewarming. Active rewarming involves the direct transfer of heat to the patient from an external source. In both active external and internal rewarming, the patient's body temperature usually increases at a rate of at least 2 degrees Celsius per hour. The technique of active external rewarming is used for patients with moderate to severe hypothermia or those who fail to respond to passive external rewarming techniques. Active external rewarming techniques uses a combination of warm blankets, heating pads, warm baths, or forced warm air systems to apply heat directly to the patient's skin. When using this technique, it's important to remember that we must rewarm the patient's trunk before rewarming his or her extremities. We do this because it reduces core temperature after drop, which is a phenomenon that occurs when the trunk and extremities are warmed at the same time. Core temperature after drop is when cold, acidemic blood that is pooled in a patient's vasoconstricted extremities returns to the core circulation, leading to a drop in core temperature and blood pH, and potentially to fatal arrhythmias. Therefore, it is important to avoid this complication by rewarming the patient's trunk before extremities. Another possible complication of active external rewarming is body surface burns. It is thus important to frequently assess the condition of the patient's skin. One quick note here is that while the textbook answer is that passive external rewarming, blankets and a warm room, is the first choice for a mildly hypothermic patient, we often can't control the temperature of most beds in the ED, and for convenience, we go to active external warming right away with a forced air device like a bear hugger. It's also popular to give these people warm IV fluids with their bear hugger as well, even for relatively mild hypothermia. To be clear, there is no randomized controlled trial to show exactly how to rewarm these patients, especially when it comes to severe and profound hypothermia. The message here is to figure out how severe the hypothermia is and tailor your interventions to the patient's condition in a stepwise fashion. I'd also just like to add one point about children. 
they are actually more prone to afterdrop than adults. Therefore, children with severe hypothermia with preserved circulation should never be warmed by active external techniques alone, but instead by either active internal techniques or a combination of active internal and active external techniques. Alright, now we'll turn to active internal rewarming, also known as active core rewarming. Active internal rewarming techniques are the most aggressive therapy, and they minimize core temperature afterdrop in those with moderate to severe hypothermia. They can be combined with active external rewarming techniques in those with severe hypothermia or in patients with moderate hypothermia who fail to respond to appropriate therapy. Aside from the administration of warmed saline and warmed humidified O2, as we briefly discussed earlier, other active internal rewarming techniques include irrigation of the peritoneum or thorax with warmed fluids and multiple extracorporeal blood rewarming techniques. So how do we decide which active internal rewarming techniques to use? The logical solution that many physicians take is to start with the least invasive methods first and continually work up in a stepwise fashion if more invasive therapy is needed. Therefore, the first active internal rewarming therapies you should apply are heated IV saline infusions and warmed humidified oxygen. These therapies only provide a modest benefit, however, since most humidifiers cannot exceed 41 degrees Celsius without modification, and the amount of heat provided by warmed IV fluids is only significant in large volume resuscitations. If you find that the patient's core temperature is not increasing at the minimum goal of 2 degrees Celsius per hour, then the next intervention to try is irrigation of the peritoneal and or pleural cavities with heated crystalloid. These two interventions are those most often used in the ED when more basic interventions fail. With peritoneal irrigation, 10 to 20 milliliters per kilogram of isotonic saline warmed to 42 degrees Celsius is infused directly into the patient's peritoneal cavity via a catheter and allowed to sit for 20 minutes before being removed by a different catheter. With pleural irrigation, Two thoracostomy tubes are placed in one or both sides of the chest. One tube is placed superiorly and anteriorly in the chest cavity, while the other is placed inferiorly and posteriorly. Isotonic saline is warmed to 40 to 42 degrees Celsius and then infused in 200 to 300 milliliter increments through the anterior tube and allowed to drain through the posterior tube. Pleural irrigation should only be performed in severely hypothermic patients and left-sided tubes should not be placed in a perfusing patient since the heart is irritable. The next intervention to be aware of is an endovascular warming device. This serves as a less invasive alternative to extracorporeal blood rewarming. Endovascular warming devices use a femoral catheter that circulates temperature-controlled water inside a closed catheter tip in the femoral vein, warming the blood as it flows past the tip. The thermostat is connected to an esophageal temperature probe and the device is set to rapidly rewarm the blood until it nears the desired temperature. The last rewarming intervention we'll discuss is extracorporeal blood rewarming. This is more often referred to as ECMO, although this is not quite an accurate term, but everyone knows what you mean when you say it. This is reserved only for severe hypothermia that is refractory to other techniques. As the name suggests, with extracorporeal blood rewarming, the blood is warmed outside the body, the five techniques for performing extracorporeal blood rewarming include venovenous, hemodialysis, continuous arteriovenous rewarming, cardiopulmonary bypass, and extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. Rather than getting into the details of how these procedures work and what differentiates them, just know that they are all very effective methods of treating severe hypothermia, and each involves a circuit in which blood is taken from the body, warmed, 
and then returned to the body. For severe cases of hypothermia, experts recommend transfer to a facility capable of doing ECMO within six hours. Now that we've discussed all the rewarming methods, let's talk about how to manage arrhythmias that may develop in patients with hypothermia. The definitive management of any arrhythmia is focused on rewarming the patient because many arrhythmias will spontaneously resolve at higher core temperatures, and most are more treatable at these higher temperatures. First, let's discuss bradycardia. Bradycardia may be physiologic in severe hypothermia, and cardiac pacing is usually not required unless the bradycardia persists after rewarming the patient to 32 to 35 degrees Celsius or 90 to 95 degrees Fahrenheit. If pacing is necessary, then transcutaneous pacing is preferred as it is less hazardous than transvenous pacing in hypothermic patients. Atrial arrhythmias, such as AFib and flutter, are common below 32 degrees Celsius and are associated with a slow ventricular response. Both are considered benign, and they usually convert spontaneously during rewarming. When it comes to ventricular arrhythmias, there is little evidence on what the proper management is. A reasonable approach is to treat the patient according to ACLS guidelines. If the patient has a ventricular fibrillation or tachycardia, defibrillation should be attempted with a single shock, even in severe hypothermia. If it is unsuccessful, further single shocks can be attempted with every 1 to 2 degrees Celsius increase in core temperature. As far as administering the patient medication, there is some disagreement on this topic. Most medications are temperature-dependent and might not have an effect at low body temperatures. However, some experts do say that epinephrine should be given for cardiac arrest even in severe hypothermia, as a return of spontaneous circulation was higher in animals who received vasopressors. On the other hand, some experts believe that vasopressors may be harmful and should be avoided. You'll have to use your own clinical judgment when deciding whether to give medications to severely hypothermic patients in cardiac arrest, but just remember that the number one priority is to rewarm the patient. So now that you know how to rewarm a hypothermic patient, what should you do if rewarming is unsuccessful? In this case, first consider other sources of hypothermia that are responsive to treatment, such as hypoglycemia, sepsis, adrenal insufficiency, and hypothyroidism. If the patient has an obvious source of infection or fails to raise his or her body temperature greater than 0.67 degrees Celsius in an hour, despite appropriate rewarming measures, then that patient should receive empiric treatment with broad-spectrum IV antibiotics since infection can hinder a patient's capacity for thermogenesis. If the patient fails to rewarm and has a profound adrenal cortical insufficiency, then they should receive 100 mg of hydrocortisone IV or 10 mg of dexamethasone IV. If the patient has evidence of hypothyroidism, such as a history of hypothyroidism, a neck scar suggestive of thyroid surgery, or if there is a failure of rewarming, then thyroid function studies should be drawn and then followed by 250 to 500 micrograms of levothyroxine IV administered over several minutes. If you do give levothyroxine, the patient must receive daily injections of 50 to 100 micrograms IV for five to seven days. As for any cold-induced skin injuries, these are treated after the patient's core temperature is stable. The patient should receive warm water baths of the affected areas for 15 to 30 minutes with 40 to 42 degrees Celsius water. Update the patient's tetanus if they've had any wounds or areas of frostbite and provide analgesia liberally. In conscious patients, rewarming really hurts. Let's talk about the disposition of patients with hypothermia. This one is pretty simple. Patients with mild primary accidental hypothermia can be safely discharged once they're rewarmed, as long as they have a good social situation at home 
and they can avoid what made them hypothermic in the first place. On the other hand, patients with moderate to severe hypothermia usually require admission to the ICU for monitoring and evaluation of underlying medical disorders. Now let's finish up by summarizing the management and disposition. The three categories of rewarming include passive external rewarming, active external rewarming, and active internal rewarming. For mild hypothermia, passive external rewarming is the treatment of choice for most patients, and it simply involves covering the patient with a blanket or other insulating material and setting the room temperature to around 82 degrees Fahrenheit. Passive external rewarming relies on the patient's ability to generate their own heat, which is a potential problem in the elderly if the patient can't maintain a rewarming rate between 0.5 and 2 degrees Celsius per hour, then you should apply active rewarming techniques. Active external rewarming is used for patients with moderate to severe hypothermia or those who fail to respond to passive external rewarming, and it uses a combination of warm blankets, forced warm air systems, or other heating devices that apply heat directly to a patient's skin. It's important to remember to rewarm the patient's trunk before rewarming his or her extremities to reduce core temperature afterdrop. Children are more prone to afterdrop than adults, and thus those with severe hypothermia should never be rewarmed by active external techniques alone. Active internal rewarming techniques are used in combination with active external rewarming techniques in those with severe hypothermia or in patients with moderate hypothermia who fail to respond to appropriate therapy. When choosing to perform active internal rewarming, start with the least invasive methods first and work up in a stepwise fashion towards more invasive therapy if needed. The first techniques to use are IV fluids heated to 40 to 42 degrees Celsius and warmed humidified oxygen. If the patient's core temperature doesn't rise by at least 2 degrees Celsius per hour, then the next intervention to try is irrigation of the peritoneal cavity with 10 to 20 milliliters per kilogram of isotonic saline, warmed to 42 degrees Celsius, and or pleural irrigation with warmed saline infused in 200 to 300 milliliter increments. Another active internal rewarming intervention is an endovascular warming device, which uses a femoral catheter to circulate in warm blood and provides a less invasive alternative to extracorporeal blood rewarming. Extracorporeal blood rewarming is reserved for severe hypothermia that is refractory to other measures, and the five techniques include venovenous, hemodialysis, continuous arteriovenous rewarming, cardiopulmonary bypass, and extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. All these methods are very effective for treating severe hypothermia and each involves a circuit in which blood is taken from the body, warmed, and then returned to the body. The definitive management of any arrhythmia is focused on rewarming the patient because many arrhythmias will spontaneously resolve at higher core temperatures, and most are more treatable at higher core temperatures. Bradycardia may be physiologic in severe hypothermia, and cardiac pacing is not required unless the bradycardia persists after rewarming the patient to 32 to 35 degrees Celsius. Atrial arrhythmias, such as AFib and flutter, are common below 32 degrees Celsius and usually convert during rewarming. When it comes to treating ventricular arrhythmias in asystole, defibrillation should be attempted with a single shock, even in severe hypothermia. If unsuccessful, further shocks can be attempted with every 1 to 2 degrees Celsius increase in core temperature. There is no definitive evidence on whether to give vasopressors, such as epinephrine, during cardiac arrest in hypothermic patients so this is up to the clinician's discretion. If rewarming is unsuccessful, then you must consider other causes of hypothermia, such as hypoglycemia, sepsis, 
adrenal insufficiency, and hypothyroidism. If the patient has an obvious source of infection or fails to raise his or her body temperature greater than 0.67 degrees Celsius per hour, despite appropriate rewarming measures, then that patient should receive empiric treatment with broad-spectrum IV antibiotics. If the patient fails to rewarm and has a potential adrenal cortical insufficiency, then he or she should receive 100 mg hydrocortisone IV or 10 mg of dexamethasone IV. If the patient has evidence of hypothyroidism, then thyroid function studies should be drawn and then followed by 250 to 500 micrograms of levothyroxine IV administered over several minutes. If you give levothyroxine, the patient must receive daily injections of 50 to 100 micrograms for 5 to 7 days. Cold-induced skin injuries are treated after the patient's core temperature is stable and consist of water baths of the affected areas for 15 to 30 minutes with 40 to 42 degrees Celsius water. Tetanus toxoid and analgesia should also be given as indicated. For the disposition, patients with mild primary accidental hypothermia can be safely discharged once they're rewarmed and can avoid what made them hypothermic in the first place. Patients with moderate to severe hypothermia, which corresponds to a core temperature of less than 32 degrees Celsius, usually require admission for monitoring and evaluation of underlying medical disorders. Well, that wraps it up for this episode on hypothermia. Before I sign off, I just wanted to thank our bandwidth sponsor, EB Medicine. This month's issue of EM Practice is on wide complex tachycardias, and it presents a straightforward approach to what can be a complicated patient. This month's pediatric EM practice is focused on myocarditis and pericarditis. Check out ebmedicine.net slash embasic for discounts and free electronic access for EM residents. As usual, if you have any questions or comments about the podcast, you can email Dr. Carroll at steve at embasic.org. Thanks again to Dr. Andrea Sarchi for this episode's script. He has another one written for Heatstroke that will be coming out soon. Until next time, this is Jake Schreiner for the EM Basic Podcast, signing off. Hey everyone, this is Steve. I wanted to come back on and give another thank you to Dr. Andrea Sarchi for writing the script for this episode and Jake Schreiner for recording it. I just want to take a minute and talk about our bandwidth sponsor, EB Medicine. They produce some great CME resources, and if you're a resident, you can get free access by going to ebmedicine.net slash embasic or clicking on the link at embasic.org. As always, attendings can also get a discount as well. That's it for today's episode. We'll be back again in two weeks with a three-part screencast on orthopedic injuries, just in time for the in-service review later in the month of February. So look for that on your podcast feed in two weeks. Even though it's a screencast, you'll still get some benefit if you listen to the audio, so check it out. Before we go, I just want to give a quick shout out to Elba from San Antonio. Thanks for listening. Until next time, this is Steve Carroll for the InBase Podcast, signing off.